0: Hey, good morning. If you're here in the room, you're joining us live online or watching us later, really glad that all of you chosen to worship with us today. Um, I'm Charlie, uh, the lead pastor here, and again, very glad that you're here. Uh, Next week is Easter, uh, and I just want to make sure everybody is aware of that. And in order to keep things safe and allow people to still be spread out, we're anticipating a lot more people, a lot of people coming back for the first time, a lot of visitors on Easter. We're going to have three services. 8.30, 10 and 11.30. It's really important if you're going to have kids that you register online. Let us know that they're going to be here. And I really do encourage everybody who can, that 10 o'clock is kind of in that sweet spot. Um, Everybody who can can kind of go to that 8.30 or 11.30. That will just allow there to be more space in the 10. Uh, Looking forward to that. We've been kind of doing this Easter series for um, the last few weeks. But before we really get into that, I guess I should acknowledge the fact that I'm wearing red pants and um, if, you were, if you were here last week, um, you heard me talk about this. I mean, obviously, I am, if you don't know, I am a very big Razorback basketball fan, have been since I was, you know, seven or eight years old. And last week, I wore a little red uh, Razorback polo and said, but if we're still in the tournament, next week, I'm wearing red pants. And uh, we're still in the tournament, lead eight, wearing the red pants. Very excited. Next week's Easter, if we're still in the tournament, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's not that I don't know what next level is. I just don't know that you can, you can do next level on Easter. But you know, we're playing for national championship next week. We'll just, we'll just take what comes. So here's the deal. Like I said, I, I, I'm a, a really big fan and like really intense, and have been for a long time. And as such, kind of endured some lean seasons over the last 20 or so years where things had kind of just gone, gone down. And, but we kind of stuck with it. And those of us who kind of stuck with it, you know, we just kind of feel like vindicated, feel like, you know, like we accomplished something, which, you know, I don't know that we did. It feels like we did. And, but, but what also happens in this is like fans start coming out. You know, people who are just like, oh, man, yeah, I've kind of always been a Razorback fan too. Oh, I really like, oh, I like basketball. And they're just kind of like, and, and there, there's kind of two lines of thought about it. When these kind of bandwagon kind of fans start to come out, is like, do you, do you, do you criticize them? Like, man, if, if you if you weren't there during this time, you don't get to say that you're a real fan. I'm, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm not like that publicly anyway. In my heart, like, in my heart, maybe I'm a little conflicted, but honestly, like, man, it, I don't care when you get on board, just get on board. We're excited and stay with us even if, you know, just no matter what, you know, we're, I'm, I'm excited. It's, it's, it's okay to be a casual fan, but let's let's not stay there, right? Let's all let's all get into it. So, but you know, there, obviously, there's some people like like I'm in the club, and if you haven't been in the club for the last 20 years, you don't get the you don't get the count. And to make an awkward transition out of this, um, I, I think there's a lot of us that kind of kind of play God this way. We play church this way. There's. There's a casual fanness to it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of God. I, 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 yeah, sure, I, I believe in God. And Easter kind of brings this out. And you can kind of see that same sort of bandwagon arrogance or something that kind of comes some from, from Easter. There are some churches, there are some people that kind of resent the people who only come at Easter. They're like, oh, man, they only come once a year. You give them weird, you know, insulting nicknames to describe them. And how dare you only come once a year. And I'm like, man, man. I'm going to be like that. I'm going to be like that. And he's like, they're coming once a year. That's one chance that we get to kind of show them the love of Christ. And maybe they'll embrace the gospel. And any opportunity to move from casual fan to a real fan is a great opportunity. But it also has me kind of asking the question, like for all of us, as we kind of get our hearts ready for Easter, like what, what is the level? What is the level of dedication and commitment and belief and passion that God wants from us. I mean, sure, He'll, he'll, he'll accept the little that we have, but there's, there's another level. What, 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 it, what is it? What does it mean? Like, I'm going to say that I am a, a passionate follower of Jesus, that, that I, am, I am completely captivated by Him, by, this, by His gospel. What, what is the level of commitment and fandom, if you will, that Jesus wants from us? And as we've been kind of tracking through this story over the last few weeks, basically leading up to Easter, kind of following through the last week or so of Jesus, and a few weeks ago we started with him entering into Jerusalem kind of as this triumphant king and declaring himself to be a king, but not quite in the way that we often think. And then Mark gave us a a great sermon uh, after that, just kind of about the the Last Supper, connecting Jesus to the Passover and to what God did in the Old Testament and the sacrifice of that lamb and comparing that to the sacrifice that Jesus was about to make. And then last week we spent some time looking at Jesus praying in the garden and we just see this raw emotion that comes from Jesus. And we've been kind of painting this better picture of who Jesus actually is and what He wants from us. And we're picking up essentially chronologically just right where we left off last week. Last week we see... Jesus being arrested and being and taken away. And now we're going to kind of look at kind of what some of the things that happened during his trial. And as I was looking at this, I was just like, I was overwhelmed by it. And this happens to me all the time. I look at this one passage and see five sermons that we could, we could talk about. But what we're really going to talk about is the way that Jesus interacts. He finds himself in front of a lot of different religious and political leaders over the course of a few hours. And people are asking him questions, trying to figure out what's going on with him. And we see Jesus' interaction with them. And we learn a lot about who Jesus is. But in addition to that, I think that we also learn a lot about what it is that Jesus really wants from us. And so we're going to pick up this story in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. So right now, the people that that are Jesus in front of are essentially the Jewish religious leaders of the time. They they would have had some political influence over the people, but they really weren't ruling the people because they were occupied by the uh, the by, by the Roman Empire. But they did have a measure of autonomy. They were able to arrest Jesus, and now they're going to put him on sort of a trial. And so that's where he is right now. And again, we're going to see him moving back between different people. Verse 67, this is them talking. "'If you are the Messiah,' they said, "'tell us.' And Jesus answered, "'If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God.' And they all asked, "Are you then the Son of God?" He replied, "You say that I am." Then they said, "Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from His own lips." So they asked him, "Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that supposedly is going to save the Jewish people from our sins and from this Roman government? Is that who you are?" And he's like, "And so again, we get a little bit of just kind of sassy Jesus here. We're going to see a little bit more of that later on." He's like, "Man, well, I don't even." If I said yes, you wouldn't believe me. And if I asked you questions, you wouldn't really answer them. What are we really doing here? And then he makes a reference to the son of man that we're going to talk about a little bit later. And they're kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you saying you're the son of God? And again, his answer is amazing. Uh, you said it. And at that point, him his non-denial there is enough for them. This guy is a blasphemer. If you don't know what that means, that's someone who says something really horrible about God or elevates themselves to the level of God. And so they hear what he's saying, saying you are elevating yourself like you are on the same level as God. That's that's blasphemy. That's enough for us. We need to do something about you. So they're going to take him to the Roman govern, governor, a guy named Pilate. Verse 1, chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Now they can't go to Pilate, the Roman governor, and say, This dude has got some really weird religious beliefs. He thinks he's like God and stuff. I mean, like, Pilate's like, I don't believe in your little quirky, superstitious religion. I don't really care. You guys sort this out yourself. I don't care. So they have to go political. This guy is making himself out to be like he's the king. He is, he's a revolutionary. This is, this is a problem for Caesar. So Pilate asked Jesus, again, a, a political question. Are you the king of the Jews? To which he gives a very similar response that he would given earlier. You said it. You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. It's like, who, who, who cares? But they insisted He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. There's a lot of weird political things going on here. And so we've got these Jewish religious leaders who have a measure of influence. And they are governed by this Roman governor. But there's also this guy Herod over here, who is kind of placed in kind of a governor-ish like position as kind of a Jewish leader, representative, fake king kind of deal. So there's kind of like a weird mixture here of very complicated politics of kind of who gets to make these kinds of decisions about this kind of person at this time. But essentially we're about to find a third person here, a third group who has at least some, measure, some claim of jurisdiction about what to do with Jesus. So we have this Jewish kind of puppet governor king guy that that the Romans have placed there, who, again, there was some conflict between him and Pilate about who was really in charge. And so they have a bad relationship. It's talked about a little bit later in the passage that we're not looked at. But so Pilate's like, man, I don't want to deal with this guy. I don't like Herod. Let's make Herod deal with this this idiot and all these people and their religious beefs or whatever. So he sends him over. Verse 7. When he learned that Jesus was under jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. And So we see Jesus kind of essentially in three different courts. One with these religious leaders, this Roman leader, and then this uh, Jewish-Roman mix kind of governor-leader guy. And in each opportunity, they're kind of like, at first they're like, man, are, are, are you the Messiah? He's like, And Jesus is like, man, I'm not, I'm not talking with you about this. He said, are you the son of God? He's like, "He said it. And then they get, and they get freaked out. And so then they send him to Pilate. Pilate's like, are you the king of the Jews? He's like, man, yeah, you're talking about it. And then he goes to Herod. He starts asking him questions. We don't really know what all the questions were. I'm sure things about miracles and identity and who he is and what his plans are. And just, Jesus won't even answer him. And we're going to talk a little bit more in a few minutes about kind of what it says about Jesus that he's not really engaging with these guys. But it is interesting to note that he has this incredible opportunity, this incredible platform to speak to the most influential people in the area. The people with the most political and religious people with the most influence in that area. And he has this opportunity essentially to testify about himself and essentially doesn't take it. And instead, again, gives very sassy, kind of smart answers back to them. Or, in the case of Herod, no answers at all. But in this interaction, we still do get a lot of titles to, about Jesus that at a minimum he's not denying, but very often is claiming for himself. And if we're going to identify and make sure we fully understand who Jesus is, I think it's important for us to understand what these are. And the first one we're going to look at, is that Jesus is the son of God. So this is a straight up question that he gets asked in verse 70. They all asked, "Are you then the son of God?" And again, his response is he you, you you say you say I am. Which is interesting because they don't really say that he is. They don't really believe it, but he's kind of he's got something interesting that he's doing here just by, by not denying it. But it's important for us to understand, essentially cover to cover through the Gospels. This is, a, this is a title that is given to Jesus, one that he gladly accepts. It's repeated all throughout the New Testament. And I want to make sure that we understand, when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we are not saying it and he's not saying it. No one here is understanding it in the way that we would often say, we're all God's children. We're all sons and daughters of God. In that sense, we're all saying we're we're all created by God. We're all loved by God. And in that sense, we are all sons and daughters of God. But that is not what is being claimed here. What is being claimed here is that he is the son of God, which is different than a child of God, the son of God. But when you talk about someone being the son of something, you have to understand, and, and this is, has a lot of inheritance claims, a lot of power claims to it, If you are the son of the master, then you're going to inherit everything. Everything is yours. And when this guy moves on, you're going to be in charge. It has a a, a great sense of power to it. And to say that you are the singular son of God is to essentially say, everything that belongs to God belongs to me. You are putting yourself on the same level as God. And so they understood this This idea of Him being the Son of God is a claim of deity. That you are equal to God the Father. And they were outraged by it. As we've seen in different passages all throughout the the, the Gospels, the last three years of Jesus' life, He's made these claims. And every time, they would either pick up rocks or tear their clothes. Like, this is an outrageous claim that you're making. You are making this claim that you are equal and on par with God. And it is important for you to understand that. Jesus is not saying that he's some great teacher and loved by God. He's not saying that he is one of the people that God favors. He is claiming a unique place and a unique role and and, and a unique identity as God himself equal to God the Father. And so in this interaction that leads up to it, we first see um, that in you know, verse 67 they ask him if you're the Messiah. And he's like, again, you're like, man, I'm don't, i I'm not going to talk to you. You're not, you're not listening. If I asked you questions, you wouldn't interact with me. But then he does say something very interesting in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And so there's a a title, another title here that Jesus is claiming for himself. Not only is he the son of God, but Jesus is the son of man. He's the son of man. He's like, like, you're you're asking me if I'm the Messiah. I'm not going to interact with you about that. But here's something that you should know. That right after this, and he's talking about right after his death. Right after this, the son of man is going to be seated at the right hand of God. Which may not mean much to you. May not mean, but to them this was like, Wait, what? You are saying you're the Son of Man? Which is, again, to us is kind of a nonsensical... Like, I don't even know what that means. And again, it is a claim that Jesus has to being a person, but to say that He is the Son of Man is actually making a very direct connection to a very significant passage in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, Daniel is seeing this vision about what the end of times is going to look like. And he says this in verse 13 of chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And so at this point, he's seeing this vision, and this person comes in. He's like, it's like a person, but there's something different about it. He's having a hard time really describing who this is. And so he uses this phrase, like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So he said, this person comes before God the Father. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this title, Son of Man, becomes to describe this person. The person who God the Father at the end of times is going to go to and say, you are the king forever. Everything that exists belongs fully to you. Again, someone on the same level as God the Father. And so when this is who the Son of Man is, again, it points a little more to Jesus' humanity, but at the same time, because of what this title meant to them, it, is an ele- it elevates him. You're not, just, you're not just claiming to be some human leader. You're saying you're on God the Father's level. And we, and we see that because he says this. He quotes, he quotes this as like, You're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God the Father. And their immediate question was, Are you saying you're the Son of God? They, 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 they were connecting some dots. You're not, wait a second, not you're not just saying savior. you're here to save us. You're saying you're the son of man? The thing from Daniel? The thing from Ezekiel? That guy? Are you saying you're the son of God? And again, this makes Jesus' answer make a little more sense. Because they're connecting these dots. And so then he says... You've said it. You figured it out. You you put all the pieces together. The things that I've said, this claim that I'm making here, all these titles. You have said it. And again, any other person, any angel, any other person in the same situation, if you are you saying you're God, would have been like, no, 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 no. The fact that there's no denial there is significant enough. But again, it's not a non-answer. It's a hymn, just kind of, again, a little bit sassy, a little, a little bit smart, kind of saying, it seems like you're finally figuring this out. And at that point, it's like, well, what else do we have? It's time to kill this guy. He's a blasphemer. He's saying he's God. And then they take him, again, on these other things, where then ultimately he gets before Pilate. And, and they say, he's claiming to be a king. And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? He says the same thing. Yeah, you're, the, what, you're, you're saying it. You're you're trying to put the pieces together too. You're figuring this out. So he's the son of God. He's the the son of man. He's the king of the Jews. He is the rightful heir. He's the rightful heir to David's throne. And so what what is said, again, that there's going to be someone in the line of King David that is ultimately going to establish a kingdom that's going to last forever. He's going to save the whole world. World. He is going to save us, and he is going to establish in a kingdom that will last forever. And so Jesus is establishing himself in all of these different interactions as these next level, again, not just a teacher, not just a prophet, not just a good person, not just someone who has some good ideas, not not, not someone sent from God, but putting himself on this elite level, this, this unique place in history. As God's very own Son, singular, the Son of God, equal to God the Father. And again, if that's who Jesus is, again, to talk about casualness in our connection to Him really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so as he's allowing this to unfold, as people are figuring out who He is, or at least who He claims to be. Again, he doesn't give the sort of direct answers that you necessarily would expect, that he would answer the questions, that he would say, yes, let me explain, this is who I am, and this is why, and it goes back to this Old Testament passage, and this says this about me, and this is what this is. He doesn't. He doesn't give a sermon. He gives non-answers or, 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 again, smart, sassy answers. But ultimately what I think that points to with Jesus is that we'll say it this way. He, he doesn't play the game. They're, they're trying to play a game. They're trying to play a game with Jesus. They're trying to get him to say something that's alarming or shocking or some kind of... They're trying to banter with him. They're trying to trick him in some way. It's a game. And Jesus is like, he's not, he's not going to play this game with them. And, you know, and we, see it, we see it before this passage. Like the, when, the, when the soldiers arrest him, they blindfold him and they, start, and they start beating him. And they start saying, prophesy, prophesy, which one of us hit you? You should know. We see this earlier in Jesus' life. They keep saying, well, if you're who you say you are, why don't you do some miracle? Like, Man, what do you mean? I do to do some miracle? It's wicked people that do that. It's wicked people that ask. Wicked people ask for a, a, a miracle. God's people trust. And you're saying, you're only going to believe in me if I do this thing. That's what wicked people do. He's not going to play the game. It's just not what he does. But we want God to play that game. We want, it, we, we want him to play. Sometimes we try to play it with him. Where it's like, well, God, I mean, I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me. I mean, the number one time this happens is anytime the Powerball gets over hundred million. Like if like if God really wanted to, I mean, he, he could have made a lot of us rich by the claims that we have made with him. God, if you will only allow me to do this. I will give you so much money, and we'll do so much great things together. Me and you and all this hundreds of millions of dollars that you're about to give me. He doesn't play that game. He doesn't play that game. I tried to play that game when I was a teenager. This gets us back to a little bit with basketball here. You may not believe this, but it's true. It's a humble brag, I guess. But there was a time in my life when I was was like a legit basketball player. I was, the, I, was, I, was, I was the tallest person in my class and very skilled. I was about this size in eighth grade. Can you imagine? I don't know what, how much you know about the size of a typical eighth grader. Can you imagine? Like you're, you're an eighth grader and, and th- this is coming at you. And I was skilled. I was really, really good. And I intimidated a lot of junior high kids back in my day and, was, and we played great. And I was, I mean, I was coming up here to basketball camp and winning all these awards at basketball camp up here. And then suddenly I stopped growing. And I'm telling you, I tried to make all sorts of deals with God. Just 6'3". Just 6'3". I just, I'll take that. I mean, I was I was a center moving towards kind of a forward. I was like, I'll be a guard, 6'3". But I, I just need a little bit more. And I'm making all these deals with him. And, and, and none of them worked out. I still ended up being a pastor, but I still never hit 6'3", which is unfair for me to do my part and you not to do yours. But he was never going to play that game. But, but we do this just like, just like they were. If you'll do this for me, then I will follow you. If you will fix this problem for me, if you will do this miracle, if you will be who I want you to be, and do what I want you to do, then I will follow you. And I don't know how that comes across when I say it, but I hope you feel the backwardsness of that. If you do what I want you to do, then I will follow you. You're not, you're not, asking, you're not asking to follow Jesus. You're asking Him to follow you. If you'll be my wizard, my genie, then yeah, that would just kind of be very useful. Very useful to have a wizard around, genie. You know, rub, rub the lamp, give what you want. If you'll be that, then I'll follow you. Well, he's like, no, we're not playing that game. He doesn't play that game. He's does play this game where I'm just going to do what you want. That is not what he he does not want to be your trinket. He does not want your casualness. He does not want to be someone who's just kind of your errand boy. But there is something that he wants. He wanted it from these leaders. He wants it from his disciples. And he wants it from us. You need to believe. You need to believe. There has always been, always been, a necessary element of trust and faith. And too often people will say, if I could have just have seen the things that Jesus did, if I could see these level of miracles, then I would believe. Here's the deal. All these people, these religious leaders that were really angry at Jesus, they all knew about this guy named Lazarus. A guy who had been dead for several days. And Jesus says, hey, Lazarus, come out. He comes out, raises Lazarus from the dead. Everybody knew that story. To the point to where, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that, um, that it says that... Um, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. Like, we're gonna kill Lazarus too. We can't, we gotta kill Jesus, we gotta kill Lazarus because we can't have this guy who Jesus has raised from the dead walking around. Everybody's gonna believe in him. So there are people that knew that Jesus had done this, knew that Jesus had raised the dude from the dead and still didn't believe. It wasn't about what they'd seen. Because the reality of it is, I think these religious leaders that hated Jesus so much. They got it a lot more than we give them credit for. Because what they saw in Jesus, he's like, Man, you're making these claims, and you're doing these things, and if what you're saying is true, if who you are is real, you are a giant threat to me. Because everything that I've believed has been wrong. I have been a deceiver I am sinful, I am broken, I am separated from God and everything that I thought was true about who I am and who God is and how I relate to Him, everything is wrong. I am incredibly more broken than I could have ever imagined. They saw Jesus as that level of a threat. And so then at that point, you've got a couple of choices. Surrender or attack. And I think that's the place where Jesus is wanting us to get to. He is not some fun friend. He's not someone who's a buddy. He's not someone who's going to come alongside you and give you support when you need it. He's a threat. He's coming and saying, man, you understand how broken you are and and and, and, and how your life is completely out of sorts and what you're doing and how you're living and how you relate to God. It's all broken and messed up. And you need to surrender. And too many of us are fighting, attacking, and it's time for surrender. And on the other side of town in Jerusalem, there's, there's, there's 11 apostles hiding in all these different places. Thinking that Jesus was headed one way and now is going to death and they can't even understand it. And somewhere their hearts are beginning to understand that if I'm really going to be a follower of Jesus... It is going to cost me something. Jesus, he wants wants my life. He wants to restore what is broken and and heal, heal what is sick and give me new life. But the only way that we get there is by admitting that we're sick and broken in the first place. And there's no casual way to do that. There's no bandwagon fan way to do that. It is a full and complete surrender of my life and who I am to Jesus Christ. Let me pray.